So before I got into this pastor gig thing, I served uh, seven years in the U.S. Coast Guard, um, and I served on three different types of units, a couple ships and another unit, um, and, but in each of those places, my specialty was uh, as a machinery technician, so I worked on everything from giant diesel engines to hydraulic systems to sewage pumps and reverse osmosis water makers. There's all kinds of the, the machinery of Coast Guard stuff, right? Um, and like many technical jobs across the globe, and certainly in our own culture, um, a lot of my training came from a mixture of classroom and on the job, like with a mentor. And, and most, the most formative times were working with coworkers or with mentors who, who showed me kind of the way uh, of doing things hands-on. In the summer of 2000, I was stationed in Northern California at a rapid response unit, and one of my main jobs, uh, yeah, we responded to oil and chemical spills, one of my main jobs was uh, maintaining uh, these specialized pumps, all stainless steel and everything, and, and uh, hydraulic systems. And that summer of 2000, we got this new guy in my department, and uh, I could tell right away, like, we had the same work ethic. Like, he would come in early and stay late, and frequently we'd be, like, the last two guys there. He just, we, we both kind of found that we couldn't go home without the job done or the shop ship shape and everything kind of squared away. And so I just noticed that, and I immediately liked him. Um, and, and one day we were working on rebuilding this diesel engine, and just before putting on the new head gasket, I go to the shelf where all the supplies are, and I'm looking for something, and he goes, uh, what are you looking for? And I, and I said, well, this might sound weird, but back in Port Angeles, uh, uh, this chief I worked under taught me a trick where if you put this special grease on the head gasket, it seals better and then comes off easier the next time you have to repair it. And he goes, are you looking for this? And I said, that's the stuff. And I was like, how did you know about that? And he goes, you must have worked under Chief Mock. And I said, yes, he totally. So we had this whole thing in common. We had just met that summer, but I recognized the chief mock in him, and he recognized this chief mock in me. We'd both worked under the same mentor and had been influenced by it. Scripture has something very hopeful and at the same time very sobering to say about our disposition or our character. On the one hand, this is good news, contrary to popular belief, your character is not set in stone. Through the power of Jesus, you can become a new person. Your disposition can increasingly reflect Jesus. You can become so like the master that people will recognize you as one of his. Like, hey, you must have had the same Master, the same boss, you must have apprenticed under Jesus. I recognize these qualities in you. And that's the good news. On the other hand, and the other end of the spectrum, and equally true is the reality that your disposition, your character can be deformed. You can choose to follow a different master, choose a different way of life, a different set of values that will all lead you down a path of deformed character, away from Jesus. And, and the startling reality is that your, your character or your disposition is always either being formed or deformed in the direction of Jesus. Like, again, this, I, I wish this weren't true, but it just is. There's no neutral. There's no neutral. There's always forces pulling on us in one way or another. So what does the disposition of a disciple of Jesus look like? 
To find out, we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Luke where we left off last week. Or right now, we are in deep in the Sermon on the Plain, which is like the counter to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And so I want to invite you to stand, if you can, uh, to Luke chapter, we're going to look at Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. This is what Jesus is saying. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot lead a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Lord, thank you for this good word. Help us to remember that it is good news. Help us to hear what you are saying to us uh, through the the vast uh, amount of time and difference in culture and language. We thank you that this word is living and active and is able to change us today as well. Amen. You may be seated. So there's just nothing easy about this Sermon on the Plain stuff. The last couple of weeks we've been, you know, taking it hard and heavy, and, and uh, here's another one like, hey, you know, don't, don't judge and don't condemn. This is, this is hard things. Um, and it's natural for us to read the gospel and hear these intense ethical standards and then to beat ourselves up for how short we fall when we compare our lives to these statements of Jesus. So that's one way that... that we, or people I talk to, me, myself sometimes, take this word at face value. Others, achievers out there, tend to look at the gospel's ethical standards and say, all right, I can do this. I may fall, but I'm going to get up again and again and again and again, right? Anyone out there like that? Yeah, that's like, that's a little bit of me too. I'm just schizophrenic about this. I, I do it all. Um, but those, both of those responses, just beating myself up or failure, or saying, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, both of those responses to the gospel would lead us to failure. And neither of those responses to the gospel are what Jesus is looking for when he says these words. Just to remind us, these words Jesus preaches here are part of the gospel. And gospel means literally good news. That means the words that Jesus is preaching are good news. These words are not so much marching orders as if we could just go off, thanks Jesus, I got it, uh, I'm going to go do this on my own. Okay? Instead, these words are a declaration of the type of person you will become when you seek to trust and obey Jesus. The generous, forgiving Gentle character described is a vision of your life as a disciple of Jesus. That ability to forgive, to not judge, 
to give generously, that is a vision for the life that Jesus wants to give us. It's a vision of the life that we begin to have. It's our disposition as we follow Jesus and obey him. And that's really good news. That's a different thing than, hey, go do this stuff in your own strength. Sometimes it's helpful just to say it out loud. So a little exercise for us. Um, Repeat after me. Jesus brings us good news. This text is good news. Speaking to the Lord now. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that respond. All right, now we're ready. It seems to me if we're going to reflect the disposition of Jesus, we should know a little bit more about what he's like. So based on the text from last week and added to what we read today, we can safely say the following about Jesus and his disposition, his character. He is merciful and generous and wise and gentle and forgiving. He loves his enemies. He's direct. He's full of truth and grace. He has a sense of humor. He sees us for who we can be, not merely for who we are. And if I hadn't already said it before, he's truthful. He's, isn't he the only one who perfectly has that sense of like, he will just, he'll mess up a Pharisee. Like, like, like he'll just say it direct because he knows the surgery that we need in our heart and our character. But he does it in such a way that's like, I would love to jump off that bridge, Jesus. You know, he just, he just melds truth and grace so perfectly. That's the kind of character I, I think we, are, uh, we can have in him. I, I, I long for that day. The first two verses in our text this evening, uh, if you're following along, verses 37 and 38, they act as a sort of a hinge, like on a door, um, between what comes before and what's going to come after. They lay out for us the aim of discipleship by showing us the values of the master, Jesus. There are three things in particular that Jesus focuses on in this hinge, these hinge verses. First, he says, do not judge and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Judgment and condemnation are different words in the Greek, and in English, obviously, but when they're in this parallel pattern in Scripture, they're there not to be different from each other, but to reinforce each other, okay? So they're they're two words that intensify one meaning, and the idea is this, that labeling people with a lasting negative designation, that's what judgment and condemnation is. It's the type of person who writes someone off, judges them, condemns them to relational death. Did, did you hear that? It, it condemns someone to relational death. Like, I, basically, I've written you off, and now you are less than worth my time, or less than worth even my anger when you've written someone off, right? And I want you to notice as we go through all this passage that I'm not focusing on Jesus because Jesus isn't focusing on the actual deeds and the behavior. It's the disposition behind it. So he's saying, don't be judgmental. That, that's, that's what he's on about. Jesus says he will refrain from condemning us if we show mercy to other people. 
It sounds like one of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's right. So that's the first thing, the judgmentalness. Second, pardon, and you will be pardoned. The word here for pardoned comes from a Greek word for, for release, like release from captivity or release from obligation. Anyone here last week that heard my, my, my talk on, uh, on reciprocity in the ancient world? Release from obligation. It's powerful. Release from debt. Release from social stigma. Release of a grudge or bitterness. It's forgiveness in the fullest sense of the word. Oftentimes when we talk about forgiveness in the church, we think of like, Okay, that just means forgiveness of my sin, which is, you know, raising my voice at my kids or, you know, going to the wrong place online or, you know, like we have these very concrete things in our minds, right? But forgiveness in in the Bible, like in the Lord's Prayer where it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, it's talking about the whole spectrum of forgiveness from the sins that we committed, but also from the power of sin itself, right? From financial, social debts to other people. Okay, so it's it's all-encompassing. The person who forgives others will be forgiven because Jesus is forgiving. And his disciples are are those who know their deep need for mercy and forgiveness. Disciples of Jesus have a disposition that reflects the master. That's why in the passage that Jennifer read earlier, you've got the self-righteous Pharisee who, on all the outward things, he's totally making the marks. He does all of his prayers and pays his tithes and is at synagogue or temple all the time. And then you've got this other guy that the world despises. He's a tax collector. But notice the dispositional difference. The Pharisee is full of himself, self-righteousness. And the tax collector knows his place. Beating his chest, he says, I'm not worthy. I am in desperate need of forgiveness. That's the disposition of a disciple. Not, not worm theology, not like I'm a lowly worm, but I you know, I, I, there's a place for being confident. And I, I know I'm loved. So I've got a loving family. I, I love you guys. You love me for the most part. Right? But I also know I'm in deep need of forgiveness on a regular basis. Right? And I think that's, it's not an either or. It's not like you have to grovel and that's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who is honest about where they're really at. That's a healthy place to be. Third, Jesus reveals the generosity of the Father. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. The images of the ancient marketplace, and usually when a person bought a measure of, say, wheat or grain or something like that, um, so measure, like a measuring cup, and, uh, you know, okay, let's say it's uh, two denarii for this measuring cup, I'm going to, the market person would scoop it, and kind of like you do with flour in a measuring cup, you take the knife, and you go like this, right, straight across. Hey, that's a perfectly fair measurement. You've got the, what I just ordered, there's the volume, and there's your measure, and uh, people had these cloaks, and they had like kind of a marsupial pouch, uh, and that's what it's talking about. You would scoop it up like this, and And that would be totally fair. That's not the father, though, that Jesus describes. Jesus describes the scene where you come in and you pay for your measure, and he scoops it up. Hold on a minute. Let me just 
pound that down a little bit, and then the grain settles, the dust kind of comes out, puts more on top, okay? Does it again, shakes it this way. Uh, Joaquin Jeremiah, actually, uh, who, who knows a lot about this culture, has written about the way that uh, a, a generous marketeer would do this today. You would actually make a cone on the top, so it's, it's bulging over, and then if you really want to get more, you can create a little indent in the cone and put more on top. This is, this is the image, this extravagant. In fact, the father is described as not fair to himself. I love that. Not fair to himself. And, and the picture is this person's cloak, pocket, overflowing with grain, and overabundance, more than they paid for. It's kind of like the fries at Five Guys. <laughs> Has anyone ever made the mistake of thinking, yeah, I totally need a large fry from Five Guys? It's like, yeah, they put this 20-ounce cup and you think, I could probably eat that. But then they put the 20-ounce cup in a bag. And then they just, like, keep going with the fries. Yeah, modern-day parable. The father's generosity is like the fry guy at Five Guys. Okay, I digress. The image uh, is simple enough, though. The father is more generous than makes worldly sense. And we can be free to mimic that extravagant generosity with other people because we can trust that the Father will be good to us. So we have a vision here of good news. We can suspend judgment and be forgiving and be generous because our Father is that way with us. That's the only way we can do it, is by believing the Father is that way with us. Sign me up. How do I become like this? How do I grow toward this disposition, the disposition of a disciple of Jesus? Well, of course, if we were in Sunday school, which we sort of are, like grown-up Sunday school, I, I know, Jesus! And actually, that's the right answer. Like, yes, if you trust and obey Jesus, uh, which is super easy to say and super hard to do. Like, I can think of a thousand reasons why this is hard to actually do. Because there are lots of people and philosophies and objects and ideas that compete for the role of master in my life. And I would guess in your life too. So in our text this evening, Jesus gives two examples or illustrations that help us in our quest for the disposition of a disciple. The first illustration is this. A blind man can't lead a blind man, can he? Uh, now, this was a stock proverb already in the ancient world. Like, when Jesus says this, he just says it because the automatic response is, of course not. Like, that was just the proverb. A blind man can't lead a blind man, can he? No, is the answer that everyone would expect. Jesus continues with the gist. Uh, if a blind man follows a blind man, will they not both fall into a pit? Which, of course, the expected answer is, of course they'll fall in a pit, Right? And the word for pit here is not like a ditch or a manhole. It is like the abyss. It is like Sheol. It is like you're not coming out of that pit. It is when the blind leave the blind to this particular pit and you fall in, you don't get out. You get destroyed. Now, obviously, this lesson isn't like Jesus isn't talking to blind people. I know actually a few blind people who could lead me quite well because they know what they're doing. It has nothing to do with the vision impaired. Uh, all throughout the gospel, we have seen Jesus teaching about uh, uh, sight and blindness. And, and these, the people with sight are the ones who see Jesus for who he really is. Remember Peter in the boat. 
The massive catch of fish. Peter had already seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law, had heard Jesus preach, had Jesus in his boat all day. He'd seen Jesus. But then Jesus does this thing, and it's like Peter's eyes are open, and he saw. That's what the text says. And he falls on his knees, and he realizes not only that he sees Jesus, but Jesus sees him. Oh, that's sight in the Bible. All right? Those who are blind, on the other hand, are the ones who trust in their own self-righteousness. Okay? And a student can only become what the master is. Like, you can't learn more than your master because you're learning from the master, right? So that's, that's the idea. You, you, you've got to follow the right teacher, Jesus is saying. In the immediate context, this would definitely refer to the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders who were zealous for the law of God, but most of them were blinded by their own traditions and the mindset that they had locked in, and, and, and they failed to see Jesus. How crazy is it that they failed to see that the God they were so passionate about preserving his holiness, and that they so wanted to serve, was standing there in the flesh. It kind of freaks me out sometimes. Where do I miss it, right? Because like, just think about that for a minute. Few people in the world were as passionate about God as the Pharisees, and they're missing him right in front of them. Beyond the Pharisees, though, this is a warning against following any other guru, that is, people who may have figured out. There's a lot of people out there who have figured out how to navigate the world pretty well. But the world, remember how that's defined, is human society organized around anything except God. So you can navigate pretty well in the world, but it may not lead you to life, okay? It could be a political party that we put our trust in to make life better for ourselves, or it could be the one that represents our ideal for what society ought to look like. If we put all our eggs in a political party, uh, that's not going to lead us to life. It could be a religious movement, or more commonly in Bellingham, a pan-religious movement. Uh, the type of, uh, we're so paralyzed by the God of fear, or, or uh, I don't know, making somebody mad that we just want to believe it all. And so what we do is we, you know, we pick and choose. I like a little bit of Buddhism, I like a little bit of Hinduism, I like a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism. Um, and, and I'm just going to kind of bring all this stuff to the table. And what you do is you actually do violence to all of those true religions because none of them would, would do that. Um, but it's like blind leading the blind. It could be a system of philosophy or the ultimate pursuit of happiness or a performance addiction or it could be a capitalist, capitalism or socialism or any kind of ism out there promising to have the right perspective. These can be blind guides. And of course, all of the stuff like substances, drugs, alcohol, sex addictions, all these addictions are symptoms of longing for a better master. We're made to give ourselves to God, uh, who is the only one that can make us whole. And what happens is when we misplace our devotion on these other masters, we suffer, and then other people suffer. And the created order suffers. Lot, there's lots more examples of other masters than Jesus and blind guides. 
Um, but the real pitfall, and this is one that we hate to acknowledge, is that we are blind too. Like, we have some major blind spots. We have access to unprecedented amount of knowledge at our fingertips, at our voice command with Siri and Alexa. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are autonomous and we are the prime agents of our own destiny. But isn't it telling? Like, I just find this so funny. Like, we have all of this massive amount of, of knowledge at our fingertips, like more than uh, you can even imagine 50 years ago, that the access we have. And yet on the commercials, like for Alexa, right? Like, Okay, so the one guy screws up his marriage, so he uses Alexa to, like, buy flowers. Or the dog is pooping on his lawn, so he uses Alexa to turn the sprinklers on. Like, of all the vast things you can do with this amazing technology, like, we just use it for trivial things. It's like, oh, man, we are the blind leading the blind. We're not just blind because we're not as powerful or wise or ontologically on par with God. We're blind because... We're deeply fallen. Our hearts and our minds don't work correctly, which leads us to Jesus' second example of a disciple. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you've got a log coming out of your face? Right? The scene is ridiculous. It would have definitely gotten a laugh from Jesus' audience because it was clearly humorous. The word for log in the Greek, dakon, is a massive timber. It's not a two-by-four, which would be ridiculous enough. It's not a four-by-four. That's that big. That's half of my face. It is like a support structure. It's like one of those things up there on the roof, one of those timbers sticking out of your face. I mean, it can't even happen. That's how ridiculous it is, right? Like, I couldn't lift my head if that was... I wouldn't be alive if that was coming out of my face. But just imagine, if you will, that's coming out of my face. (laughs) It's crazy. And then you've got a speck of sawdust in your eye. Like, that would take precision to get out. I'm like, excuse me, Ryan, let me try and get that out of your eye while I've got a log. Watch the log, watch the log. (laughs) Insanity. Do not harbor a judgmental attitude. That's the disposition of a disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus know that they have a tree sticking out of their face. (laughs) They know the lengths Jesus went to forgive them. And they want to be like Jesus, full of humility and mercy and truth. Do not judge. It's one of Jesus' most misunderstood statements when taken out of context. So let me just be clear about what this doesn't mean, okay? Because I I think that's important. First, it does not mean that we should not have courts and literal judges. All throughout Scripture, Jesus calls on people to act as judges. God calls on Moses to hear people's cases. And then he delegated this role to a multitude of wise, experienced people who could help him shoulder the load. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about the role of government and executive and judicial policy, right? Okay, so we're not supposed to do away with courts and judges. Second, Jesus is not saying, don't think, right? Again, the rest of Scripture confirms that God calls us to be discerning, to make judgments between good and evil, right and wrong, love and injustice, 
In just a few verses, Jesus will say to look out for false prophets. He says you can judge a false prophet by the fruit of their lives. So we are to be discerning, like to make judgments. And third, this does not mean that we don't ever confront people who wrong us. In fact, uh, going to Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says that if your brother or sister sins against you, you should privately go tell that person that you've been hurt by them. And if they refuse then to acknowledge you, you should bring witnesses along with you. So we're to be truthful and appropriately confront sin. And fourth, this doesn't mean that, hey, anything goes at church because we've all got logs in our faces, so we might as well not have, we shouldn't care, okay? One of the big words in our culture is, is tolerance. I, I prefer love. I think love is more powerful. Uh, but an attitude of tolerance sometimes sleeps, seeps into the church uh, to the degree where we're so afraid to offend anyone that we just let everything go. But Jesus calls us to be more than that, more than tolerant. He calls us to be loving. And sometimes loving is when you say, hey, Chris, I think you have a problem, or I watched you do this, or I, I didn't appreciate the way you spoke to me or spoke about this or that. I mean, that, that's, that's more loving than just letting someone keep going in their sin, right? Love means sometimes you take the unpopular stance for the good of other people. I will say this, church discipline or confrontation always, 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 when it's practiced in terms of Jesus and Paul, always leads to reconciliation and restoration. That's the only reason we would do that. We don't do things to blast people. So what is Jesus saying here? I think we have enough uh, to make our decision, but he gives us even more. So one more verse, or part of a verse. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck uh, out of your brother's eye. You probably already know, but hypocrite's a term from the Greek theater. Uh, in those days, in a play, um, men played all the roles, and they wore uh, masks and everything, so they played female roles and male roles. There might just be a handful of actors who would play all the roles in a play. Hypocrite was the term used for actors, and in popular usage, it was slang for someone who was insincere or pretending to be something that they're not. And when we get to this section, some people have read this as a mandate to first get yourself together, remove the log from your own eye, and then you'll have perspective enough to remove specks from your brother's and your sister's eye, all right? I just want to say I'm not so sure about that conclusion. I'm not so sure. Do we ever see clearly enough? I'd like to say, and I believe I do, see clearer today than I did five years ago and clearer than I did 10 years ago after, you know, following Jesus year after year. I'd like to think, and I think, that I see a little clearer than I did before. But do I ever have perspective enough to judge someone I mean, I'm pretty sure Scripture says that judgment is reserved for God. Second, are we to wait until a certain clarity before we can ever hold anyone else accountable? What size does the log have to be? A 4 by 4 a 2 by 4 A splinter? Are we to imagine a world where we simply let everything go, evil and sin, just because we aren't perfect? 
Well, that's not biblical either. What a horrible world that would be. Instead, what I think is that this passage encourages us to have such self-awareness and humility that we are extremely careful about confronting others. And when we do, out of obedience to Jesus and for the good of others, we do it with gentleness. We do it with love. And we do it with a view towards restoration. That is the disposition of a disciple. It's not primarily about being right. It's about being loving. And love doesn't condemn. And it doesn't fear confrontation. And love wants what is best for individuals. And love wants what's best for the church. And love wants what's best for societies. And it's costly, right? It's the disposition of a disciple of Jesus because Jesus loves and empowers us to take on his character only to find that's what we're made for in the first place. And I love that. Let's pray. Lord, I think of that image of the marketplace of you giving us an abundance more than we deserve, more than we paid for. Think of how that translates to to the cross. How all of this good news that you talk about in this sermon is only possible because of your your generosity, of of your rescue, of you giving your own life to forgive us, to set us free, and to give us your very spirit. Lord, deep in our core, we want to be like this. We want to be people who are free, free to be generous without fear, free to be forgiving without holding on to grudges. We want to be bearers of of joy and love and of the good news of you, Lord Jesus. I'm thankful that you know the barriers that hold us back. You, You know the other masters in our lives, and I pray through the power of your spirit that you would help each of us to to surrender those masters to embrace you to trust you and would you bear in us that character that you so perfectly possess a gentleness of spirit a humility and yet a confidence knowing that we are your children deeply loved Saying those things, Lord, with as messed up as we are, is asking for a miracle. That's why we're here, Lord. That's why we're praying these things and not making a strategy on a napkin. We need your intervention, and that's what we pray for, Lord. Thank you. Amen.